Hi, this is Fernando Hernandez, producer of America the Bilingual. It's September 12, 2017. And joining me by phone is Steve Levine, our dear host, calling from Delray Beach, Florida, one of the many cities struck by Hurricane Irma. Fernando, it's good to hear your voice. I'm calling you from the Delray Beach Public Library. We were uh, one of the communities in Florida hit by uh, Irma, and uh, we are recovering but not very quickly. We still have no power and uh, no internet, no landline, and the cell phone service is very poor. So uh, let's hope our connection lasts. In any event, we're going to call the episode that would have launched now, episode 14. It's going to be a wonderful episode, but it's going to uh, come out in two weeks while we repair and the, and the rest of Florida repairs. And then we'll, we'll be uh, up in business again. Most of the traffic lights are out, so the police have just put little stop signs on, and there, there's still a curfew dawn to dusk, and you have to show your driver's license to um, get uh, access to the barrier islands. You know, it makes me it makes me think of other disasters, both uh, natural, uh, like the terrible earthquake in Mexico, and the of course the, the flooding in Houston. And I'm and I'm worried that we haven't heard the the last of Irma either. You know, uh, my friend Paul Sappho reminded me that the worst reports are always the last. This natural disaster that we're dealing with now made me think of episode six, which we titled The Little Ketchup Girl. I think that's such a wonderful episode and has new meaning for me uh, this week, not just because of the disasters and in that case, a man-made disaster. Thanks, Fernando, and uh, thanks everyone for listening. And we will uh, be back again in two weeks for the next episode of America the Bilingual. And uh, we forgot to say America the Bilingual, a podcast for those who believe bilingualism is good for themselves, for their families, for their country. This is Steve Levine. My memories go from uh, playing with my toys to my mom basically tapping me on the shoulder saying, we got to go into the basement. So we literally went down into the basement and, you know, there was like, I remember mice and rats and stuff being around us and then everything was pitch black. And bombs started going off. Um, my entire family was down there. That's Michelle Bazargan, an Iranian-American recalling some of her first memories as a young girl which happened to be during the 1979 Islamic Revolution in Tehran. So my memories go from that to next minute I knew my mom, my parents had made the decision that we were going to leave. My father was not with us, it was just my mother and I. And the next memory that I have is us packing our bags. Um, we had one bag each and that was it. My mom's like, you cannot take your toys. Michelle explained to me that some families decided to stay and cope while others decided to leave, knowing that they could bring almost nothing with them. Her mother, who was just 24 years old, was talking with Michelle's grandfather. He was crying. Her mother was telling him she wanted to leave for her daughter's sake. And she just kept saying, I don't want to take the risk and have her stay here and not have a future. And I remember, you know, waving goodbye to him as, like the bus drove away. And then um, bombs were going off. They were pulling the bus. From the anxiety of fleeing their home, Michelle got sick. I had to actually pull us over a couple times because I was getting sick. I was throwing up, I had diarrhea, it was horrible. 
and it was freezing out. I do remember that everybody was just nervous. You know, here's this child that keeps pulling over the bus and they're just trying to get across to the border. I remember after that, we finally were able to get to Turkey. And then from Turkey, we landed in um, France. We had one family member that lived in Paris. And so they were kind enough to open their home to us for a little while until we were able to get our visa to come to the States. I don't think we knew what we were in for. We thought that once we survived this piece of it, we got out, you get away from a war, win. But the real journey started when we came here. Welcome to America the Bilingual, a podcast for Americans like me who are learning their next language or would like to start. I'm Steve Levine. Michelle's parents eventually reunited in Miami. Back in Tehran, they had been professionals, but in the U.S., they took whatever jobs they could get. And that's a lot of what I remember my dad was an advertising executive. My mom was a banking executive, too. My father was going to school, parking cars at night. My mom was cleaning homes. Michelle told me she was introverted as a child, and that, combined with not speaking English well enough, made it traumatic at school. Yeah, my mom would actually, we joke about this to this day, she would drop me off at school, and I would literally sit in the corner and cry for 45 minutes, not wanting to go into the class. And the teacher would come out and consult me and it was a process almost most of the time um, and I used to ask my mom can we just go back to Iran please like I can't do this Michelle says her teachers were understanding but sometimes inadvertently they would put her on the spot it was interesting because they went around the room and they asked um, everybody listed their favorite animal and so as they listed it, she was she wanted them to spell it and write it on the board. And I had to go up, and I think I picked a cat or something. And so for some reason, I froze, and I couldn't. I got as far as the C. And the rest of the kids were fine. They got up there, they wrote it out, no big deal. And they started all laughing at me. And I put the chalk down and literally ran out the room. And was hysterically crying. I wouldn't come back into the room. My mom had to leave work and come get me. Her parents were having their own troubles. Michelle remembers them coming home with stories about their co-workers making fun of their English. Her mother, her English having improved, got a job in a bank again. But one night, Michelle saw something she had never seen. Her mother came home crying. I remember the night before she was working on this major presentation, and the presentation did not go well because every five minutes they kept stopping her and telling her, I don't understand what you're saying. Um, and she was hysterically crying over it, even saying things like, maybe this was a mistake, maybe we don't belong here. Um, and she was killing herself. Like she was not sleeping. Like she was, you know, taking care of me, working a second job, trying to make it work at the bank. Her parents decided that the English they were all getting during the day would not be enough. They would have to start speaking English at home too. So that 
during the day we would get English, at night it would be English, and it would not only help my parents with what they were trying to excel, but myself as well as a student. And so we did that probably, um, I was seven or eight, and we did that until I was about 12. Michelle's mom said that they would all have to face up to their challenges, including when going out in public. I didn't have confidence at all, and I didn't speak the language. So we would go to, let's say, McDonald's, and she'd be like, go ask for more ketchup. I'm like, I don't know how to say that. So, sweetheart, why do you keep standing in line? You need to have confidence and go in front of the line and ask for the ketchup. You don't need to stand in line. And it was a process. She did this to me at least 50 times until I finally got the courage to go up to the counter and ask for ketchup. And thus was born a nickname for Michelle. Robam, my little ketchup girl. Although money was tight, her parents enrolled her in a private school. Michelle knew her parents were sacrificing and felt the pressure to do well. Gradually, her English improved and she started doing better in school. I felt like I couldn't let them down. For some reason, I remember fifth grade, I came home with all straight A's and the honor roll and... Um, You know, my mom even reminded me of everything that I went through, and it was an example of you stuck in there, you didn't run away, and look at you. After a few years, once the family was comfortable enough with their English, they decided to switch back to speaking Farsi at home. Because my parents did not want me to forget the language, did not want me to forget the culture, um, that was very important to them to instill that. And even... In my little sister, she was born here. So when she was growing up, she was forced to speak Farsi as well. And as a result, we both speak Farsi fluently. Even when her English became fluent, Michelle faced other challenges. As a teenager, I, uh, it's probably about 16, 15, 16, and I think there was something in the media at the time. I, I, I don't know if it was during um, a hostage episode or something had happened, and People knew I was from there, and there was actually another girl in my class that was from another Middle Eastern country, and the kids were running around calling us terrorists. And as as a teenager, it bothered me, and I tried to hide that. You know, I would go home crying and saying, why am I different? I don't want to be different. Why are they calling me a terrorist? That's not who we are. In 1993, Michelle, her mother, and her little sister were finally able to return to Iran for a five-week visit. Alas, it was too late to see her grandfather, who had died. That tearful goodbye back in 1979 was to be the last time they would see him. But Michelle says it was extremely gratifying to be able to speak in Farsi with her remaining family in Tehran. Back in the U.S., Michelle went to college and then into high-tech. Today, she works in IT for an automotive company and is proud to be an Iranian-American. I'm very proud of it. It's funny, growing up, I used to sometimes actually hide where I was from. But as an adult, even though now, I'm so proud of it. I don't care what's in the media. That's like me taking a portion of what happens here in the States and labeling everybody here for something that's negative. That's not, that doesn't define the people of a country. After Michelle became confident in her own life, she found to her surprise that she has a knack for helping others gain confidence in theirs. She helped an immigrant from Poland improve some of her American cultural understanding and to be more confident in her presentations. 
the woman got promoted and came to see Michelle with tears of gratitude. I didn't look at it as that big of a deal. And she told me that I changed her life. Michelle told me that she came to understand that no matter how much technology we have in our lives, it's the human connections that matter. And encouraging people to make those connections with confidence is her passion. She gave a TED Talk about it. And it means so much more to me because of where I come from and what I've watched my family go through. I believe that that is why I'm here. It's like my calling. I feel like everybody has a purpose in this world and I feel like that is my purpose. Her mother was in the audience when Michelle gave her TED Talk. My little catch-up girl is now on stage doing a TED Talk. She was completely in tears. Farsi, also called Persian, is spoken by some 110 million people worldwide. In the U.S., we have about 390,000 Farsi speakers, most of them from Iran. Since Michelle is a technologist, I have to ask her one of my favorite questions. Will technology make language learning obsolete? I am a technologist, but I'm also a big believer in connection and emotional connection. And unless we're robots, there's nothing that can replace that. And that, f that warmth you have in your heart when you understand what another culture and language is coming from is a different feeling than putting an iPhone app. Michelle, like so many immigrants who came here as children, can speak her heritage language but not read and write it. Today, Michelle is working on her reading and writing and preparing for another trip to Iran with her mother. That's definitely one of my goals is to... Um, practice it here, but then also to be able to go there and be able to read the signs finally. <laughs> I remind Michelle that her mother will probably listen to this episode. Is there anything she would like to say to her? Sure, actually to both my parents, which is Merci ke hamishe bara man unja budin va ruman hichbach hesab mikaradin ke midunistin man mitunam bokonam. Thank you so much for believing in me, never giving up on me, and having full confidence that. I, I could do whatever I set my mind to. <laughs> no, no, I'm going to have to get the clean. <laughs> Just a thought I'd like to share with you. I can envision an America with more and more bilinguals, more and more Americans who speak English perfectly, like Michelle, and another language too. America's immigrants can help lead us there. All we have to do as a nation is show our immigrants that we value not just their beautiful English, but their beautiful heritage language as well. America the Bilingual is part of the Lead with Languages campaign of ACTFL, the American Council on the Teaching of Foreign Languages. This episode was written by me, Steve Levine, and our producer, Fernando Hernandez, who also does sound design and mixing. Our editorial consultants are Maya Thomas and Mim Harrison. Associate producer is Becky Rankin. Graphic arts are created by Carlos Plaza Design Studio. Music in this episode by Kevin McLeod, Francisco Panilla, Jorge Mario Suelta, Mon Placier, and Mystery Mammal. All thanks to the Free Music Archive directed by WFMU. Sound recordings are found at freesound.org. For more information about this episode, visit americathebilingual.com. 
We hope you like this podcast. If so, please let your friends know. It's the best way to spread the bilingual word. Thanks for listening. For America the Bilingual, this is Steve Levine.